All right, well, there should be a picture up there. Does anybody recognize that car? It's a 1959 Peugeot 403 Cabriolet convertible. And uh, some people might recognize it because it's the car that Lieutenant Columbo drove in the famous TV series by the same name. Now, that car hasn't been manufactured since 1966. So I want to do a little brain exercise with you. If I were to tell you that all the machinery that produced that car was still in existence, and we were able to get that all in one place, and we brought in all the raw materials to feed into those machines, and we could build every part for that car, and after manufacturing every part for that car, we assembled it, and we produced a 403 Peugeot Cabriolet convertible. Would we have produced an old car? Or would we have produced a new car? Or would we have produced an old car with a new life? So keep that in mind as uh, we look into our sermon this morning, our text uh, from 1 John 2. But before we jump in, I just want to do a little review because it's been a few weeks since we were in John, 1 John. And uh, so first of all, we learned from the Apostle John why he's writing this book to begin with. And he said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. We also learned that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. We learned that in order to have a relationship with God, that we must walk in the light as he is in the light. We can't ignore our sin. We can't deny our sin. And we cannot claim that we've never sinned. We must deal with the darkness of sin by confessing it and turning from it. That's how we stay in the light. We learn that if we're walking in the light, then certain things should follow. And John gives us the evidences of those things. The first evidence that we're in the light and that we're in Christ is that our attitude towards the commandments is one of keeping them. We learn that keeping the commandments is not the same as obeying them. But if we keep them, obedience will follow. That was John's first test of faith. We learn that those who treasure the commandments of God and the word of Christ abide in him so closely that they're almost unaware of their good works. Their fullness of joy leads them to live lives that look like Jesus. God's love being perfected in you is the evidence that you're in Christ. Today, we will explore John's second test of faith. And that follows from the first. The third one does too. But we're gonna look at the second test today. If the love of God is being perfected in you, then certain things should follow. So let's begin now in 1 John 2, verse seven and eight. It says, beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. 
So at first glance, it seems a little incoherent what John is saying here. He's, he's saying new commandment, old commandment. What do you mean, John? But it's not incoherent. This is a picture of how the gospel transforms people. These verses describe the effect of conversion. So when we're walking in the light of God, a transformation occurs. There's a new motive at work within us. That's evidence of the new life. It's the love of God being perfected in, you, in us. Now verse eight says the commandment is new in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. In you is the key. This is personal. How did the commandment get in you? Well, in verse 7, John defines the old commandment as the word that you heard. He says that this is the word you heard from the beginning. Well, the beginning of what? From the first time you heard it. The beginning John's referring to here is not the beginning of time or the beginning of creation, but the beginning of your exposure to the word of God. It's personal. All of us have a time when we first heard God's word. Some of us can remember it, some of us can't. But the truth is that we've all had an exposure, a first exposure to God's word. That's the old truth. The truth doesn't have a beginning. It's eternal and it is God, right? Remember, Jesus is the word of God. So in that sense, the command is old. There's nothing older than the word, right? So how is it new then? And this is very interesting. The law of God can be summarized or boiled down to two great commandments. In Matthew 22, 37 through 40, we read those two great commandments. And he said to them, that's Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And that reflects the first test. Do you keep the commandments? The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So John's first test deals with our relationship towards God and his word. And if we pass that test, then you're going to pass the second test. So let's look at verse 8 again. This is the second test. This is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The word, I'm sorry, that's not the second test. We'll get there in a second. <laughs> He's going on in verse eight because uh, the darkness is passing away. Remember, there's this metaphor of light and dark and light is, is holiness, darkness is sin. There's a battle going on. The word of God is like a seed, right? And Christ has always been the word. He's always been the truth. He's always been the light, but he's also the seed. And we see that in Genesis 3.15, the first mention of the gospel. In the ESV, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The word translated offspring is the Hebrew word zerah, which in Hebrew means seed. And the King James translates it that way. It says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So Jesus is the seed of the woman who would eventually defeat Satan. The entire Old Testament is the story of that seed. 
The seed of the gospel is throughout all of the Old Testament. It's in type and shadow, though, right? It's taught by the prophets. It's lived out in example by the patriarchs. And it's finally revealed in the truth or the birth of Jesus. The seed became flesh and was revealed. That seed had to die. It had to be buried in order to sprout forth and bring new life and rebirth to men. The old commandment becomes new. It becomes alive in the new birth. That's what John is saying in these first two verses. Now, those two verses show us in detail what the effect of the word of God is on redeemed sinners. You receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the word, the seed of God. And now the commandment is alive in you. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's how the old command became new. So my first point is that in Christ, all things become new. The old word has sprouted, and now, because Jesus did all the work, you, through repentance and faith, have received the indwelling of that word. That word lives in you now. It's no longer a seed, it's a plant. It's no longer external to you. It's in you, as verse 8 says. The darkness of the grave is passing away and the true light of eternal life is now shining forth. The true light that's in you and in him will overcome all the darkness of the world and all the darkness of your hearts. That's good news. And listen to these words from Jesus in Revelation. Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And John did write them down. That's why we're reading them. At the end of history, all things will be made new. But church, that renewal has already begun in those that belong to Christ, right here and right now. The Apostle Paul sums it up very nicely in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, where he says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you have that light in you? Are you walking in that light? Well, if you are, then you most certainly will pass John's second test of faith. If the commandment is alive in you, then this should follow. And here we get the second test, for real. This is 1 John 2, verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Do you love the church? Not the building, not the music. Sorry, Ron, I do love the music, though. Not the bagels, 
but do you love God's people? Because, verse 9 says, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. And verse 11 is even sterner. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The evidence of faith is that the love of God is being perfected in you. And if that's true, then what should manifest itself is the fact that you love God's people. With all their problems, with all their eccentricities, I have a few of those, with all in their annoying habits, even when they're not nice to you. You know, the church is a big family, right? And the bigger the family is, the more you run into family problems. <laughs> like the person who squeezes the toothpaste in the middle instead of rolling it up from the end, or the person who just can't seem to put anything back where it came from, or the always on time person versus the always late person. You know what I mean, right? But did you disown your family because it wasn't perfect? No. Of course not. But why? Well, because you love them. So you put up with it. Just so you know, I squeeze the toothpaste in the middle, and I'm always late, and I never put anything back where it came from. But Pam still loves me. I am getting better, though. I think Pam could attest to that. And so are all of us who are in Christ. We're all getting better because the love of God is being perfected in us. So our love for his people also grows as a direct outcome of that. Not only that, but our love for all people grows as well. That's how people see the gospel. Jesus spoke just like John. In fact, John heard it from Jesus first. In John 13, 34 and 35, we read, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, the Apostle Paul, he gives us one of the most striking examples of this kind of love. And I shudder whenever I read this. We, we just heard it. Mike preached through this a couple of sermons ago. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. This is Romans 9, 1 through 3. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul had so much love for his people who are not in Christ, by the way, that he wished he could give up his own salvation so that they could be saved. Wow. So how much more did he love the church then? Well, he loved the church so much that he would give away his own salvation to make sure every one of his people could be in the church. That's how much he loved the church. So my second point is, if you love God, then you will love his people. 
So John's second test of faith is tied directly to the second greatest commandment, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I've used that word love a lot so far in this sermon, right? But we have to define that word. What kind of love are we talking about here? Some may think that you have to like somebody in order to love them. Now, it's easier to love somebody you like, right? But you don't have to like them to love them. In the verses that we're looking at here, the Greek word in every case that's translated love is the word agape. For 1 John 2, 5 said it. It says that the love, the agape of God is being perfected in those who keep his commandments, and that is evidence that we know God and are in Christ. It's God's kind of love. That's the kind of love that we should have for our brothers and sisters. So what does agape look like? Thankfully, the scripture doesn't leave us in the dark there. And I did find a really cool description of, or a definition for agape love on gotquestions.org. And they said this, God's type of love protects. That is, it watches out for others. It withstands difficulty. And if there is a shortcoming or a fault in the loved one, love has the ability to cover it. Agape is not based on selfish desire or even mutual benefit. Rather, it seeks the benefit of the other person. Agape aims to give rather than receive. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. So the second greatest commandment says, agape your neighbor as yourself. What do you do for yourself? Do that for your neighbor. This kind of love does things. It's active. Agape love is not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not a feeling. It's not a feeling at all. Agape love is not friendship. For we read in Matthew 5, verse 44, but I say to you, agape your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, the greatest display of agape love ever, of course, is Jesus on the cross. Amazingly, that same event also is the pinnacle display of human self-love. Because Jesus loved his enemies. He agaped his enemies and died for them to be saved. While his enemies, they love themselves and they love their power and they love their system. So much so that they saw fit to kill the innocent man who threatened it. Now, in 1 Corinthians 13, we have a beautiful picture of what agape love really is. And you can turn there for a minute. We're going to go through this chapter. 
Agape love is always known by what it does, not how it feels. So in 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to read the first three verses. It says, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not agape, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not agape, then I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not agape, I gain nothing. So in these first three verses, Paul is showing us that if your internal motivation is not agape love, then all of your efforts amount to nothing. He's not saying your efforts have no value to others. He's saying your efforts have no value to you. Without the love of God as your motivation, your efforts are in vain, and they do not contain a heavenly blessing for you. They are an attempt to earn God's favor, and they are a rejection of Christ's work. You will not be rewarded for your efforts because you're working out of self-interest, not the interest of your master, Jesus, or the good of his people, the church. So Paul says you can be fluent in all the languages, both earthly and heavenly, but if you don't speak those words motivated by agape love, you are just a noisemaker. You can be the smartest man on the planet, and you can have the resolve and faith to move mountains with your own strength, but if your knowledge and efforts do not serve your neighbor from a heart of full of agape love, you're just a boaster. Look what I did. Paul says you can be the greatest philanthropist in the world and you can give away everything that you have. But if your giving is not motivated by your agape love for Christ and his mission, you're giving it all away for nothing. You're working out of self-love and self-interest. So how can we be sure that we're motivated by agape love? Well, Paul shows us the marks of agape love in the next three verses. These are the marks of agape love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast it is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Those are the marks. Is this the kind of love that you practice? towards your brothers and sisters. Wow, I'm feeling pretty convicted up here. But Paul clarifies even more in verse seven. And this is the meat of the matter right here. 
So 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. These are the actions of agape love. Love bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. And endures all things. This is how you apply the second test of John. This is how you know if you love the brothers and your sisters in the sense that John means it in verse 10. Whoever loves his brother, agape, abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. So just like the first test is our attitude toward the commandments, this test focuses on our attitude towards the brethren. If our attitude towards the commandment is correct, then our attitude towards the brethren will be correct because it flows out of our attitude towards the commandments. If you love God and you keep his commandments, that means you love his commandments, then you're gonna love his people. So first, love bears all things. The Greek word translated, <clears throat> excuse me, bears is stego, which literally means to cover and it includes the idea of protecting and preserving. The NIV translates stego as protects. So love protects all things. The sense here is that not only do we put up with or bear with our brothers, but we also protect them and shelter them with the intent to help them. In short, if you possess agape love, then you will be almost impossible to offend. We see an excellent example of this in Joseph and Mary, the husband of Mary. In Matthew 1.19, we read, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Mary was pregnant, and Joseph knew that he wasn't the father. Now, in Jewish culture, people were considered married even while they were engaged. That's how that worked, right? But there was no relation between them until after the ceremony. So Joseph was called Mary's husband because they were engaged to be married. And while they were engaged, Mary turns up pregnant, and Joseph was not the one responsible for that. Imagine now, if you were Joseph, what is your reaction to this? I'm going to pick on Steve Barlow for a second here. Just for a minute. Now, you don't have to answer. This is a sermon illustration. All right. But what if two weeks before the glorious day of your marriage to Noel, it became known to you that she was pregnant? I think we can take a pregnant moment and consider that, right? <laughs> I think the gravity of the situation is quite apparent. Now, Steve, he's a lot like Joseph, and I know that Noel would attest to that. <laughs> but what about the rest of us? Is your reaction, oh my goodness, I've been such a good Christian. I've done everything the Bible tells me to do. I've kept myself pure. How could God do this to me? I'm so mad. I'm going to make her pay for this crime if it's the last thing I do. 
Or is your reaction more like this one? This is terrible for my fiance. My heart is broken for her. What will people think of her? What does this mean for her soul? Joseph was unwilling to put her to shame. Unwilling. That's agape stego. Agape stego covers and protects all things. 1 Peter 4, verse 8 says, Above all, keep loving agape one another earnestly since love agape covers a multitude of sins. Second, love believes all things. The Greek word translated as believe is the verb form of pistuo. You don't have to remember. There's no test on it. It means to believe, to place faith, and to put trust in. That's what it means. This, again, is an attitude. It's a posture towards other believers. This is not saying that we should be gullible. It's not saying that we should be undiscerning. Okay? But what it is saying is something you've heard me say many times. We should always put the best construct on things, and especially people. Our love towards others should not be tempered by conditions. Pistuo does not second guess whether love should be extended to a brother. It's not based on what the brother or the sister did or does but rather on Christ. Christ loved us unconditionally and he calls us to do the same for others. Agape is not a feeling, it's an action. The apostle Paul, he called out the Corinthian church for not practicing agape pistuo. We read about it in chapter six where he says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try even trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no understanding or no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. It can't be, can it be that there's none among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but rather goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers, to have lawsuits at all with anyone or with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So let's check our agape pistuo meter reading. I'm going to pick on Bob Fieldhouse this time. <laughs> you don't have to answer, Bob. I know you always do the right thing. But let's just say that you do some painting for a Highland member, a Highlands member or a tender, and after pouring out all of your mad painting skills and serving him with your best effort, that brother says, I ain't gonna pay you. 
What do you do? Well, all of us can identify with being defrauded, right? And this goes all the way back to our childhood. Yes, even the kids get defrauded. And I'm speaking to you kids now, so listen to me, okay? What do you do when a friend agrees to trade you something that you want, like a Hot Wheels car that's missing from your collection, right? Your friend says to you, I'll trade you the Hot Wheel if you give me the Snickers bar in your lunchbox. And so you give him the Snickers bar because you want the Hot Wheel. And he eats the Snickers bar, but he never hands over the Hot Wheel. What do you do? We have all had promises made to us that were not delivered on, right? Moms, dads, brothers, sisters, employers, employees, teachers, professionals, husbands, wives, and yes, even kids. We have all been defrauded at times, even by other Christians. Our response to this kind of thing is the meter reading of our agape pistuo. Now, our first emotion is usually anger or outrage, right? But that's not what's in view here. Sometimes we even have righteous anger in our sinfulness. We can manage righteous anger sometimes, right? But that's still not what's in view here. The question to be answered is what do we do about it? What do we do about it? Not how do we feel about it. Do you see what John's driving at? It's our attitude. It's our focus. Are we focused on getting what's due us? Or are we focused on the state of the soul of our defrauder? Think about Jesus. Every time you sin, you have defrauded Jesus. How does he treat you? Remember, 1 John 2, verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father even when we defraud him. Do you advocate for a brother or a sister who has sinned against you? Do you act to protect the reputation of your brother who you perceive to have defrauded you? Until the truth can be ascertained, do you act to put the best construct on the situation? Do you make sure that there is nothing that you have done to cause the issue? Do you resist condemning your brother's action until you have explored all the possibilities to clear them? And do you make sure that you have not misread the situation? Are you sure you kept your side of the bargain? Agape Pistuo will exhaust every possibility to exonerate a brother first. But what if the brother really did sin against you? What if he really is guilty of defrauding you? How does Agape respond to being sinned against? Well, the four actions of Agape, they all work together. This is one of those irreducible complexities. If you remove one, you, you lose the agape. All four of these actions of agape work together. They're not standalone. 
So our response to being defrauded, for example, for real, results in first, covering or protecting the reputation of the defrauder while we seek truth and resolution. That's agape stego. Then agape pistua works to put the best construct on the situation. It doesn't jump to conclusions. It owns its own part in the problem. And it doesn't make up stories. Then the third action of agape is in view. Love hopes all things. The Greek word translated hope is elpidzo. When a person who possesses agape is actually wronged, actually sinned against, the agape love he possesses will move his heart to unmitigated anger. A well-crafted plan of revenge. No. Agape elpidzo will move a heart to concern. Concern for the offender's soul. Elpidzo hopes for the best outcome. If your motivation is agape love for your brothers, then you are actively seeking the good of their souls. You are gainfully, and yes, sometimes painfully, employed in the sanctification of your brothers and sisters. You are jealous for their salvation. You desire to see them complete the race and receive the crown of life that's promised to them. So agape elpidzo knows three things. These are three things it knows that are true when a brother sins and will not repent. First, it knows that destruction awaits this brother's soul on judgment day. Agape elpidzo is concerned about that. It hopes for repentance. Second, it knows that the value of what this brother has defrauded you of is what he just sold his soul for. Just like Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of porridge. Agape Elpidzo is concerned about that. And it hopes for a turnaround. Third, Agape Elpidzo knows that even this sinning brother is made in the image of God. And while he still has breath, he can repent and be forgiven. Agape Elpidzo hopes to see that happen. Agape Elpidzo would rather endure the cost of being sinned against than chance the loss of a soul to hell. The person who possesses Agape Elpidzo knows that God saves even wicked sinners. So Agape Elpidzo clears everything out of the way. It hopes for the offending sinner to be saved. That's Agape Elpidzo. And that brings us to the fourth action of agape. Love endures all things. The Greek word translated endures is, sounds pretty neat. It's hoop ameno. Hoop ameno. Actually, hoop ameno. <laughs> the Greek word hoop ameno carries the idea of remaining or enduring. Love doesn't quit. It doesn't give up. Love lasts. Godly love always perseveres. 
Godly love hangs in there during the good times and the bad times. The love of God's people endures the challenges of life and remains steadfast. The wedding vows between husband and wife demonstrate this. They vow to love and cherish each other for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in health and in sickness. Till when? Till death does them part. The basis for that pledge is hoop omeno. Love endures. So let's put it all together. You lovers of the brethren, if you're walking in the light, then the commandment, the word of Christ, is alive in you. Jesus has indwelt you by the Holy Spirit when you became a believer. The agape of God has now come to live inside of you. That love has sprouted in your hearts and it's growing. It's being perfected in you. 1 John 2 verse 5. The evidence of that is that it produces love, agape of the brethren. Agape love is known by what it does, not by how it feels. Our emotions are not reliable. Our hearts are deceitful and wicked. Agape love loves like God loves. So how did God love us? Well, God loved you while you were still his enemy, Romans 5.8. Lovers of the brethren, do you love your enemies in the church? God suffered the loss of his son so that you might be saved. Lovers of the brethren, do you suffer loss of money, of time, of pride, of reputation, so that your enemy in the church might be sanctified? In Christ, God sees you as righteous. He sees you as if you are as righteous as Christ. Lovers of the brethren, do you see your brothers in the light of the best construct that you can put on them? Do you see them as they are? Or do you strive to see them as they will be? Do you look at the sin in them? Or do you look for the Christ in them? In Christ, God's love endures for you forever. No one can separate you from his love. Romans 8, 35 through 39, right? Lovers of the brethren, do you keep extending love to your wife, to your husband, to your pastor, to your elder, to your brother in Christ, to your sister in Christ? No matter how much they've disappointed you, no matter how much they failed you or hurt you or even sinned against you, even when all of your emotions are clashing with agape? I know it's hard. But that's exactly how God loved us. Are you like that? 
Do you want to be like that? Are you still far from that but are striving to be like that? Well, then you're loving your brother. You're abiding in the light. You're in him. And you know what? The second half of verse 10 says, in you, there's no cause for stumbling. You know what that means? Well, I have no idea. That's why I asked you. (laughs) No, actually, what that means is this. If you are keeping the commandments, if you're keeping the words of Christ, then you're living in the light. And because of that, you're shining the light for others. It's hard to stumble if you can see where you're going, right? And if you are shining the light for others, then they can see too. That's the beauty of it. And they won't stumble either. So that brings me to my third point. Walking in the light makes the path safe for you and your brothers. Now, verse 11 gives us the other side of the coin. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. And he walks in the darkness. And he does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If you can't see where you're going, you're likely to stumble. And anyone who's following you is likely to have the same outcome. The fact is this. If you don't love the brethren, you don't love God. You are in the dark. And that, my friend, if it's you, is the biggest problem that you have. If that's you, then you need light. And you should be very concerned about that. If you refuse to come into the light, you will spend eternity in pure darkness. Not just the absence of light, but in the absence of good. And not just in the absence of good, but in the presence of everything that's evil. And you won't be able to blame God for it. Nope. Because he has given you the light of his word. He has given you the light of his church. He has given you the light of creation. And he has provided you the righteousness that his holiness demands through the work of Jesus Christ. He desires the salvation of your soul, and so do I, and so does every believer in this room. So why do you resist? Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Don't be the fool. Turn from your love of sin and look to Christ. Love him instead. He's your lawyer, as we learned in our last sermon, and he's your banker before God, who is judge. Ask him to represent you before God the Father, and you will be saved. 
Only Jesus can represent you before God and pay off your sin debt. Only he can do it. But don't wait till the sun goes down because you don't know if tomorrow has been granted to you. You don't even know if your trip home has been granted to you. Now, John takes a brief interlude before he gives us the next test of faith. And don't worry, we're not covering that test this sermon. John's message has been hard to hear. I mean, you want to see some conviction while I was preparing for these sermons. (laughs) All of us know that even believers, uh, they don't always keep the commands They don't always love the brethren. We're a messed up bunch. We sin, we mess up, we make mistakes. We're far from perfect. And then we get discouraged because our seeming inability to love God and to love his people. And John's whole reason for writing to us was to encourage us, right? (laughs) By showing us how we can be sure and confident that we are in the faith. Now, John, he doesn't want any of you to have false assurance. I think he's made that pretty clear up until now. Because the end of that is devastation. But whenever you're calling people out of false assurance, and whenever you're pointing to the standards of God, you run the risk of discouraging or even destroying the assurance of tender-hearted believers. All this hard talk, could cause a true believer to doubt that he's in the faith at all. And John doesn't want his hearers to misunderstand him. So in this interlude, his pastoral heart comes out again. And he takes a moment to comfort his hearers. So listen to his comfort. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. You do. You know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So in John's time, just like in our time, there were believers in the church who were of all different spiritual ages, right? There were the babies in the faith, converted only a few days ago, all the way up to battle-worn soldiers, mature and full of wisdom and holiness. So John encourages the little ones by reminding them that he's writing to them because they do know the Father and their sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So keep looking to Jesus. Keep looking to the light. And you won't stumble. You will grow. John encourages the fathers by reminding them that they know him. They know him who's from the beginning. They know the truth and they live in the truth. They are fathers. Not of physical children only, but also spiritual children who are the fruit of their ministry, the result of their ability to teach and to lead. 
fathers often need more encouragement than others. You know why? Because the more you know God, the more you know how much you're not like him. The more you know God, the more you know and you hate your sin. So John encourages them by reminding them that their fruit is manifest. Yep, in the fact that they have produced children. John encourages them by reminding them that their faith has also produced knowledge, especially a knowing. This is an intimate word, a knowing of the one true God. Not intellectual. The one who is from the beginning. And finally, John encourages the young men by reminding them that they are strong. They have shown their strength by overcoming the evil one. They have overcome the evil one because the word of God lives in them. The commandment is new in you. Keep walking in the light and you too will be fathers with physical and spiritual children. Keep leading the charge. Keep looking to Christ. Stay in the light. Church, we have all of these in our congregation. So take John's encouragement and take my encouragement for you little ones in the faith and you youngsters. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep following the light bearers who care for you in Christ. Learn all you can. Grow all you can and trust Jesus with all your heart. We also have young godly men all over this place. And I'm truly blessed to see you all growing in Christ. What an encouragement that is to your elders and leaders. Keep your swords sharp. Keep your battle plan, the word of God, close at hand and stored in your heart lest it be taken out of your hand. Lead and teach your families that you may be approved to lead the church someday. Keep your hand to the plow and don't look back. You are the soldiers who are pushing the gospel of the kingdom forward. You are the ones who carry on the battle for the young who can't fight yet. And the old who can't fight anymore. Be men of integrity. Be men of God. You have overcome the evil one. He's under your feet. Keep him there. And we also have many old saints with lots of wisdom. Well, maybe some of us, maybe not me. But old saints, I want you to keep training the young soldiers. I want you to encourage them. Keep them supplied with all they need for the battles of today. Us old saints, you know, we may be growing weaker physically, but our brains are still strong. 
So let's strengthen everyone in the Lord that the Lord has given us to shepherd. And fathers, be encouraged by the fruit that you see all around you. Wow, do we have fruit. Church, let us let the light of the gospel shine, shine, and shine so that no one will be deprived of seeing it and hearing it so that everyone will be drawn to Jesus through our witness. Let's outdo each other in agape love for each other. Let's make the whole lost world jealous for Jesus. You've been made new. Your old man has new life. Let's live it out. Let's pray. Father God, we are so humbled by your love for us. And we're encouraged by your words to us that that love never fades. And so, Lord, knowing that we cannot fail, let us then, Lord, spend our lives in service to our King, loving our enemies, that they might become our allies. And, Lord, let this agape be seen by how we love each other here. And we thank you, Lord, that it is seen here. But let it grow even more. Let it be that whenever someone comes through our door, they see Jesus. And they see him in us. Forgive us, Lord, for where we fall short. And help us this week to practice agape love and to bring more fruit into the kingdom. We ask it in God's name, in Jesus' name, amen.